This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Jan Van Eck, and he has really a fascinating background in history. His father built Van Eck Associates in 1955. He never expected to go into the family business, kind of wandered about aimlessly. In the podcast portion, we talk about the overlap between our backgrounds. It's kind of uh, amusing to me. But eventually comes into the business, which was about a billion dollars in AUM. And here it is uh, some 28 years later, and they're up to $56 billion. He's the CEO and basically runs the shop with a team. It is an ensemble practice. They were very early into the world of ETFs, and they do a lot of really interesting thematic funds. If you are at all interested in international investments or thematic investments or ESG investments, then you're going to find this conversation to be quite fascinating. So with no further ado, my sit down with my friend, Jan Van Eck. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Jan Van Eck. He is the CEO and director of Van Eck Associates, where he has worked since 1992. Uh, Van Eck manages about $56 billion in assets, 80% of which is in ETFs, for which the firm has won numerous awards. Jan Van Eck... Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you so much, Barry. So, you and I know each other um, from a few different overlapping entities. Probably uh, inside the ETFs is the one that the entire San Sebastian crew, right, of through ETF, Jim Wyatt, yeah, right, through yep. ETF folks. Let's talk a little bit about your background. It, you work for a think tank, a newspaper. You go to law school. You get a degree from Stanford. What were you doing wandering the fields for so long? Didn't you just think it was inevitable you were going to end up in the business that coincidentally has your last name on it? Uh, in my own mind, Barry, uh, uh, no. Uh, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I graduated uh, with a degree in economics. and from What was your undergraduate? Uh, you w- Williams College. Right. And so you come out with an econ degree and... Doesn't that suggest business and or finance or it, not It does, that clear? but I did the minimum to get my degree in econ and, and I really enjoyed liberal arts. So I took as many classes and I did something that um, I, I think a lot of people should do and has not done enough, which is audit classes. I mean, there's so much great stuff at a, at a college like Williams. So, you know, art history, history, uh, photography, philosophy, lots of things. Uh, you know. Now, people piece. have a tendency to do that later in life. You did that when you were 19 and 20? It's free. You know, you sit in for a course for an hour or two during college, and you know, you've already paid the tuition. So the, the professors love to have more students there, at least you know, in a smaller school. And today you can audit classes from Yale or MIT or NYU or any one of 100 schools online for free. Are right. you still doing that? Uh, well, I, I love to listen to podcasts and, and get information. Do you think all they're going to catch on? Ways. Yeah, maybe. 
All right. Uh, we'll see. We'll see if they get big ever. So um, to answer your question, yes. right? Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I graduated. And, you know, there's this great podcast. I haven't read the book on the book Range, right? Uh-huh. And, and and just experiment as much as you can when you're young. So I Good did advice. an internship at the Washington Post Metro Desk. Huh. Uh, while I was in law school, I worked for a prosecutor one summer uh, in the Eastern District of New York. I worked for a corporate law firm doing M&A deals. I interned in Germany one summer at a bank. I mean, just tried as many different things. But the, the thing that triggered my love of business was actually working in Silicon Valley. And uh, Who'd you work for in Silicon Valley? I actually, after Brookings... Um, that was the think tank you were that at. That was the think tank. Uh, I realized I did not uh, want to get a PhD in economics. Uh, academia was not for Jan. And so I put my stuff in a car and drove cross-country and volunteered on a political campaign, uh, which what we don't need this? to go into. What year was this? <laughs> 1986. Okay. Um, it was a Senate campaign, and it was a losing Senate campaign. So, But I, I learned a lot. Um, and most importantly, I met some entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley who I just love the attitude of, I try something, it doesn't work. I tried something else, it went public. I'm doing all these different things. Just that, that creativity, I didn't perceive, even though I grew up in the New York City area, you know, looking at the banks and going up the rung of management, I did not perceive that level of creativity. So that's when I fell in love with business um, and then you know, decided to go back to that region for law school. Was lucky enough to get into Stanford, um, but that's that's which kind is of a history. fabulous, fabulous school. That's a little more than luck. That's good undergraduate grades, good recommendations, and a good LSAT score. Yes. <laughs> are you are you a good standardized test taker? I, I must be. So, we'll, we'll talk more about that later. So, even as a son of a financier, your dad opened and launched Van Eck Associates in 1955. You never assumed. Well, I'll end up in investing in the family business one day. Look, it's a psychological thing I can't go through, but I'll tell you two things. The door was always open. Mm -hmm. So my father and my father always said, do what you want to do because your happiness is more important than, you know, whether this business um, is is there or not. So how those things add up, I'll let for, you know, third parties to decide. But, you know, my my father was very no pressure uh, to come into the business. So one of the questions that I like to ask people who come from a a family background in finance is what are some of your earliest memories about money and investing do you remember the first stock you ever bought or based on what you're saying now you're not that guy who was running a lemonade stand to buy um shares in ge when you were nine you know it's kind of Interesting. I was never a portfolio manager and I wasn't the guy to buy shares. But, you know, when I look back in in high school, um, I would buy Coca-Cola from distributors and resell them by the bottle. I worked, probably didn't have to. I worked. So it's just a pure arbitrage for service. Like, so uh there was something about wanting to do stuff to make money (laughs) that was that was definitely early, early on for me. Quite interesting. So Van Eck was one of the first asset managers to offer U.S. investors access to international markets. How did that affect the company and how, how much overseas in investment does Van Eck currently do today? We're an American firm based in New York, but we always have had a very international um, orientation. Not only was the first fund that my father launched an international equity fund, 
The idea was to take advantage of the rebound in Germany and Japan after World War II. That was the investment thesis, at least. 1950s. Yeah, it was going to be Marshall Plan and a whole European and Asian rebound. Right. Um, and uh, and cheaper valuations as well. We've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Or Still, that to this day. <laughs> again. Right. Um, so, uh, so that was really the story. And so our perspective has always been international. Also, you know, he later flipped that fund into a gold fund and resources investing is very international as well, whether at the time Mm -hmm. of South Africa, Australia, Canada, you're always a majority of our perspective and assets were not in the U.S. Quite interesting. You guys have some really fascinating investment funds. The one you launched a few years ago that caught my eye, the Van Eck Vectors Video Gaming and Esports ETF, which I know has won a number of ETF awards, best thematic ETF, best this, best that. What was the thinking behind an esports ETF? Well, uh, you know, what we try to do is look from a longer term perspective. We don't want to just chase fads, right? There's a lot of ETFs on micro themes. And give us an example on, on micro themes. Yeah. I mean, you know, like lots of things. Healthcare industry, for example, has been sliced and diced into cancer drugs and this. So and that. really or, narrow, or or even like five G, like. I mean, it's 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 an interesting thesis, but what happens when 6G comes out? Then they'll so, change the name of the fund. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> of course, there's always a solution once right. the AUM is in the door. Right. But um, yeah, so so I try to take a, like a five or ten year view. And one of the things that's happening now, so we've had the smartphone for ten years, is the virtualization of life. And, virtualization, uh, meaning we exist in a, a virtual world of software as opposed to in, in meat space. Yeah, and social media, it. right? Before right. you and I met in real life, I was listening to your podcast. I was, you know, you and I have swapped you tweets, media. although you're pretty, uh, I'm pretty constrained. You're pretty low key on, on the, on the Twitter. Right. So, uh, so, so the entertainment world is going through that revolution. First uh-huh. of all, as we get wealthier as a society, more people enjoy sports, entertainment, betting. That, that's a growth industry. But it's also transforming from the traditional you know, professional football, basketball, hockey into you know, online gaming and the creation of teams competing against each other. And, and that's just – that could just continue to grow. And the dimensions now, right, it's not just the playing of the game, there's the watching of the game, and and there's the the replaying of those things on YouTube, and people watching games. And now audience participation, Barry, is likely to happen, right, where you're watching a game, and as a spectator, you can vote on the teams or advise them. I don't I do not do that. So, so let me ask you a, about there's that. A, there's a longer-term future, is my point. So, so that blows my mind. My frame of reference is... Uh, decades ago, when I was on a trading desk, one of my favorite things to do each Tuesday night was once everybody was done with their blotter and their P&L, which you had to save to a disc and then walk to the head trader's office. That's how long ago it was. The The quote server would become a quake server, and all the traders would jack in, and we would have this giant multiplayer game of quake, which was so immersive I would look up and, uh, uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. It's past 10 o'clock. I've been doing this since 4.30. And I found it fascinating. I cannot imagine watching other people play e-games. This is going to be a giant burgeoning industry. 
It is already. And I think the only thing that we don't know, the story that hasn't been written, is the monetization of all that traffic and crowds. Uh-huh. Uh, so we, we know that people are doing it. I mean, way more people watch these esports world championships than the watch the Super Bowl. The purses are giant, right? I mean, some of the winnings yeah, and are kids, kids, sorry, expression, are making five, you know, five million bucks for, for winning one of these things. Amazing. Uh, all the... A lot of the owners of professional sports teams own esports teams as well. Makes sense. So you know, it's a it's life is a racket, right? So they're it's gonna, a lateral they know move this for next them. next trend, uh-huh. and having an ETF just allows the rest of us normal people to participate in the trend. The other thing that's really worth noting is Asia is a it's a huge cultural thing in sure. Asia, right? Not just in in China, but in South Korea and Japan, and it's just it's just big culturally. A lot of stuff is being the life is being lived on. Online. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, let's talk about something that I'm fascinated with, the Van Eck Vectors Green Bond ETF. The obvious question, what's a green bond? Well, uh, so green bond is very simple. It is money raised by a company or a government that is supposed to go to improve operations that have a better effect on the environment. So give us an so example of it's a bond of a- by bond decision. It's uh-huh. not a company decision. So uh, the dirtiest uh, commodity company in the world could issue a green bond if it was improving its processing to reduce the use of water, for example. So if you're a coal-fired electrical plant and you want to raise money to transition to natural gas, would you consider that a green bond? So it's not, luckily, it's not us making this determination. There's a third party that certifies uh, these green bonds, and it's and it's a big source of financing. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's grown. And, and these have become pretty popular, haven't they? Or they're starting to ramp up? They're starting to. I mean, uh, our fund's not, not huge. Um, I think what people sometimes say is, I want perfection in my, I'll call it values-based or ESG investment. Sure. And perfection doesn't exist. There are trade-offs in life. So the issue is, okay, I get it. The environment's getting better, but I may not like the issue, or it's a China government entity, or it's a, a polluter that, or has some right. other kind of practices I might not like. So, I mean, in the U.S., we have several environmental funds, and I think you have to stack those values. And so we say, okay, if you care about the environment more than the other factors, then this is a, this is a good allocation for you. For for ESG investors, the old maxim "Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good" can very much apply, can it? I th- I think so. Right now, it's hard to it's hard to figure out how to optimize everything. So let's talk about something that's not so green. Two of your biggest funds are the gold miners and the junior miners. I've and that's a what about twenty billion dollars all, all told. Yeah, I noticed back in the day that when there were signs of inflation or signs of deficits, a lot of fund managers wanted an instant hedge on inflation. And so they would all pile into the junior miners. That behavior kind of changed when the GLD ETF came out. Why does anyone need the execution or managerial risk of a mine and its management team and expenses when you could just buy GLD and and there's your hedge? Am I oversimplifying that? Or has, has GLD, as one of the biggest ETFs out there, change the dynamic around the gold miners and junior miners? 
Um, yes, but let me give you some more historical context, Please. right? So we've had two big commodity booms in my lifetime in the 1970s and then in the aughts. Right. And they were very, very different for the operating companies because in the 1970s, commodities, gold went from $35 to $800, oil went up, all that stuff. But the cost of manufacturing all those commodities did not change. Mm-hmm. So the companies were like options. I mean, all, all the, the, the revenue would go up and the costs would really not go up. And so, I mean, the stocks were fabulous. I mean, so fabulous. when the prices the of the gold com- fund uh, that we had in that decade would, would go up like 100, 150% a year. We're going to talk about that gold fund later, but the key is when so the now, price of the commodities went up, the company generated a whole lot more earnings. Right. But now, in this last cycle and the aughts, that was not the case. The costs of manufacturing, for a variety of different reasons, um, the cost would go up as well. High inflation, so, falling so, dollar, really problematic. Well, the manufacturing in the costs. So yeah. energy was growing. So right. that was an input to mine that was a bigger factor. Uh, you have to dig way more dirt per ounce of whatever you're pulling out, whether it's gold or copper or whatever. So there's just a lot of different factors. So the last cycle, there wasn't as much return leverage, which is what you were asking mm-hmm. about, as in the 1970s. So now where are we today? Gold is hitting all-time highs, except in the US dollar. And I would agree with you, <laughs> uh, if you want a hedge against sort of the, the current monetary system, and you're a little bit nervous about central bankers flying around in capes trying to fix every problem, including the coronavirus, then you probably want you know several different hedges. You want gold mining shares. You probably want gold bullion, but you also want to look at Bitcoin. And really? that, oh yeah. So that is the, that's the alternative asset for the younger generation. I mean, Coinbase has between 30 and 40 million U.S. American, you know, American customers. How do you uh, deal with the fact that something like a third of all bitcoins that have ever been mined have either been lost in in the terms of being misplaced or literally hacked and stolen? How how do you how does an investor manage that? I th- well, custody is a major issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, there there are a couple of issues around Bitcoin. Uh, custody, I think, is being solved because you do have major institutions like Fidelity, uh, the New York Stock Exchange, getting involved in offering Bitcoin access, having salt, taken that uh, custody issue away from you. As far as you know, some way what they call whales or people owning a lot of Bitcoin or North it, Korea. Being, it being <laughs> lost or whatever, and then the, the background of the mining community, our point, and we've got a lot of slides on, our, on our website to show it is the, the the diversification of ownership, trading, and mining is so much these days. I don't think it's a practical concern to say that this is one just big manipulated market by one entity or something like. I'm that. I'm not saying it's, it's manipulated. Yeah. I'm saying people seem to be you know when one out of three dollars or even if it's one out of four dollars in Bitcoin seems to have vanished, that kind of raises a question for me. Maybe it's still early days and a little bit of the Wild West, and they'll eventually wrestle that into submission, but I think that scares some people. All all of these assets have their pros and cons, right? I just say buy a basket, because if there is a big Mm -hmm. scare to the system, what's going to go? All we care about, what goes up more? We don't know. Bitcoin could go up way more than gold shares or gold right. bullion. So the, if you can solve the custody issue for yourself, then I, then I think I don't care about your concern. Huh. Quite interesting. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the company that you joined in 92. And I want to focus on the era in the 1970s where your dad had an extremely prescient 
call into gold in a very inflationary era, but more than just being a pundit who said gold's going up, he made a giant bet on that. Tell us about it. So my father started the firm in 55. He actually started it later in life. And so in the in the 60s, he had uh, just gotten married. Um, he was just over 50 years old, and he was getting a degree uh, at night at NYU in economics. Mm-hmm. And one of his professors was an Austrian economist called Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> and if you know anything, I mean, he's, sure. he's famous, right? But Austrians were never really accepted into academia in the United States. They're a little so strict. So he actually was not a full professor. Uh-huh. He was just sort of an adjunct. But anyway, my father, they, they are sort of hardcore monetarists, and they really yep. focus on money supply. Hard and, money. You know, and it was basically, look, guns and butter were happening in the 1960s. Money supply was exploding, and eventually that was going to break into inflation. And the way to make money off of that was to invest in gold. Now, as you said, I really think it's amazing the risk he took at that point in time, because gold had always been fixed against the U.S. dollar for the entirety of history. So almost By government mandate. Yes. For almost 200 years of our history, gold had been fixed. He said, this paradigm is going to break. And that's really the philosophy of our firm, which is you can't just look at the four corners of the financial markets. You have to look at technology trends, political trends, and major economic trends. And, and several years later, so he had to have a lot of patience, uh, that, that broke. By the way, for folks who may not be familiar with Ludwig von Mises, he's one of the most famous of the Austrians, wrote a number of books, and really well-known. If you're more interested in more of that, just just go Google von Mises. But I'm fascinated by the gold trade. Your father puts how much money into gold at that point? Well, he's, so he had an international equity fund, and he went to Cheryl, as he said, I'm doing this, and he, he Converts sold 80, 80 plus percent of the fund and bought gold mining I, shares. Now, you couldn't buy gold. So that's, he was a little bit, to your point before, he was forced into right. buying the shares. No GLD, and if you want to buy actual gold, you're buying futures, and it's leveraged, and it's time to They didn't have futures then. Oh, that's right. You, we're talking 70s. Yeah, so, so it totally really, different era. Exactly. Right. So three quarters of a billion dollars, more or less, in to gold, or this was? Oh no, no! This oh was way before that. Oh my God, the fund was teeny. Yeah, how the big was the fund? Was teeny. Oh, I mean, it was way less than a hundred million dollars. Okay, eighty percent of I which mean, goes no, into no gold. No one wanted international investments in the nineteen sixties. It's kind of like today, right? Right. I mean, you don't want to even talk about it. So he piles into gold in this small, formerly international equity fund. It does nothing for two or three years. Do cl- what are clients saying? What are investors saying when you have us in gold? And not only is it doing nothing, but thanks to inflation, it's actually worth less each year. Well, yeah, gold was less. I think the companies were okay. I haven't you know, looked at the performance over that time mm-hmm. period. But the industry was so small, Barry, right? The industry exploded in the late 70s because of money market funds, right. when, when the rate you could get on banks was regulated. So it was a cottage industry. And Amazing. you know what ended up happening, though, because the performance was so tremendous, that fund was the best performing mutual fund in the industry in the 70s. And that it, decade. That decade. Fund of the decade. He, yep. Peter, he beat Peter Lynch, everything. Peter who? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Buying companies. And, he should have been in gold. And he you know, he went on Merv Griffin. I mean, it was- Get out of here. was such a big deal back then. Uh-huh. It, was, it was popular culture, 
right? I mean, interest rates were going into the teens. And uh, yeah, Sounds I like remember nervously at home watching my dad, Marv Griffin, going, like, please, really? don't embarrass us. And so obviously that had to help the company is from the time gold explodes when we no longer on the gold standard is what, 73, 74? Yeah, early 70s. Yeah, so so yeah. almost 20 years later, you come into the company in 1992, and the firm's up to a billion dollars in assets. Well, it got to two billion. Yeah, and uh, you know, right at the peak. So right, right um, in 1980, and then Paul Volcker comes in uh, and you breaks know, boom, the that back was of that. inflation, and, and, and so gold, starts... gold went down to you know two hundred dollars an ounce. Uh, so in, here's in the early two thousands. So. Here's the really big question: Post gold, you're there in '92. The firm is now one billion from two billion. Today, it's fifty times the size. How did you manage to grow the firm over 30 years, 50x? Well, first of all, I, it's not first person, you know, singular. There were a lot of people. It was a team, um, mm -hmm. one of whom was my brother, who passed away 10 years ago, but he was part of it. But there were a lot of other colleagues as well. And it was building up other mutual funds. And then uh, really before I was what I call ETF guy in 2006, we for 10 years, we had a hedge fund business. And we had two hedge funds that we rose uh, about $4 billion, and so had some good strategies there for a while. Quite fascinating. There's a quote of yours I really like, and I have to start the segment on investing with this. Quote, the investment world is broken up into two types of people, historians and statisticians. Discuss. Well, anyone that's not just doing a market cap exposure fund tends to have some kind of bias, and they look to do asset allocation as well based on that kind of bias. And I think there's been a lot of quant work done, and a lot of the investors, let's take value investing, for example, right? Mm -hmm. A study comes out, says value is the way to go. I've done, you know, I look at the fundamentals of a company, and those with a cheaper price to book, that's going to work, right? Because it's worked historically. Because it's worked historically, it's giving you some kind of added return over the market return. And then it doesn't work. And then it doesn't work, and it hasn't worked for 10 years. Right. I like to point out how little we know. Really, I feel like we're in the caveman era of investing, Barry. I know there's been a lot of innovation, but there's so little we know. What is there? Is there an academic theory that says growth versus value? No, no one can time growth versus value. It's an ongoing debate. Yet there's trillions of dollars at very prestigious firms that have this value tilt. Mm -hmm. that have now been underperforming. Mm -hmm. So uh, anyway, so that's kind of my, uh, you know, my perspective that you just can't use these mathematical tests. And, and a mathematician said, that's insulting. You really have to call them statisticians, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, but basically, you can't just use mathematical ratios to say, therefore, there is an investment opportunity. And the current one that's floating around today is emerging markets value stocks have underperformed and they're For cheap. For a long, long time. And they're cheap and therefore mean reversion. The statisticians say, oh, that's great value. My perspective on the world is that of a historian. The world is changing so much all the time. So let me just take emerging markets. Emerging market index is so different today. China dominates it. Asia right. is 80% of that index. There's basically everything else you can ignore 10, 15 years ago, an emerging markets index had Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Korea. Remember, like Brazil, Mexico. It, it's just not even the same thing. To, so to take that statistic and say, I'm going to do a study and give you an investment recommendation. Look, that's a school of thought. 
I'm in the what I call historian school of thought, which is there's so much change. Look at all the change that's happening. If only there was an ETF that was emerging markets ex China, that would be fantastic. It wouldn't be important in the world, right? No, but it could actually see some long term growth, not dominated by one single company. Yeah. We, we filed for one. Don't worry. <laughs> um, that's why I brought that up. Uh, I wanted to toss that out. The other thing you and I briefly discussed. A long time ago over wine, and I want to continue the conversation. We'll see if you remember this. There are many ways to measure value, price to book being only one of them. And people kind of forget the days of having a book value with giant factories or thousands of miles of rail tracks or fiber optic cables or whatever may not really be so applicable to companies like Apple or Google or Facebook. And you point out, they have intellectual property. The algorithm of Google search and how they monetize ads is not exactly the sort of book value that we saw in the days of steel manufacturers and railroads and automobile companies. Right. Well, I think, as I was implying before, I think there are these these things that people observe in the markets and then they kind of go away after a while for whatever reason. Maybe they're arbitraged away or, for, or whatever. Right. And I do think that in the new economy... I'm not saying growth will outperform value forever. I'm not saying you should tilt your portfolio that way, but I definitely don't think you have to look at the measures um, these days. The, the one that we have as a firm that we like is the wide moat philosophy, which is look at the earnings on a forward-looking basis. Okay, so it's not just looking at all the statistics on Yahoo Finance or Bloomberg, right. but, and that's produced by Morningstar Equity Research. And then, so that'll estimate the profitability. So even if a company like Facebook is not making money, which it wasn't at a point in time, right. we know the potential is, is, is there, then we include it. And then the second step is to make sure that you're not overpaying for that. Because that, I think, is a real value that doesn't exist in all ETFs, which is that valuation discipline of kicking out companies if they just become too expensive. So you're really talking about GARP, growth at a reasonable price? Is that, that what you're implying? Yeah, I would say. Okay. A proprietary version of GARP. <laughs> they would not like that, but I think that's fair. So let, let's talk about some of the ETFs you've launched. You guys are not known for plain vanilla beta. How do you think about developing a new strategy? How do you put together the philosophy behind a new ETF? And then how do you decide, here's how we're going to market this, because you guys have been very successful with this. I like to call it, it's like handcrafted beers. Every mm -hmm. one of our ETFs, we really try to think about the underlying structure of the asset class and the market and how to construct an exchange-traded uh, vehicle to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. So for fixed income, um, if I could talk about that, for uh, we have several high yield funds. You want to make sure there's enough liquidity in that. So for our high yield muni fund, we made sure a slug was in triple Bs, so that there would be an, enough liquidity in our view throughout a market cycle for that product. Also, sticking with fixed income again, this is the Vanek philosophy, right? Look at the macro trends and market structure in in the industry. So what's happened over the last ten years has been the growth of triple Bs as a percent of the overall uh, investment grade market, right? So the lowest level of rating for investment grade is now fifty percent of all investment grade, and triple Bs today are greater in issuance than all of investment grade debt 10 years ago. So let me let me wrap my head around this. 
the weakest investment grade bonds are now half of in, of investment grade portfolios. Correct. So, in other words, we've kind of worked our way down the risk scale to get a little more return. Is is that the thinking behind? Yeah, companies that? are so it's it's natural. Companies are optimizing. They're saying, "Listen, I can keep my borrowing costs down if I just keep stay a little bit above junk." And then in a low interest rate environment, I've got all this money at 2%. You know, what's not to love? And, and the spread between investment grade and, and high yield or junk has really narrowed over the past well, couple of years. because we're awash in money. So right. that's a separate thing. But anyway- Well, let's, let's address that because it's a fascinating topic. Whether we're looking at venture capital or private equity or pretty much everything else, there is just an ungodly amount of capital coursing its way through the system. Absolutely. And what does that mean? Uh, well, like I say, for 2020, don't worry, be happy. Right. Um, I mean, you can't fight central banks. Don't fight and the Fed. Don't. Well, and look at China. That's my thing that I think a lot of people don't look at. You have to look at what's going on in China. And the narrative in China is also, right now, mildly stimulative. So I can go into that if you'd like. Well, well let's talk about that, because you had something I thought was pretty insightful leading into the fourth quarter of 2018, when we saw a 20% temporary correction. And you said, hey, China was looking at a hard landing. They were slowing down, which is why we saw our weakness. And they figured it out and started stimulating again. How do you offset that here in the first quarter of 2020 against the coronavirus, which doesn't seem to be coming to a natural end Yet we we assume they'll eventually wrestle this into submission, like they have with other pandemics, like Ebola or Zika or going out SARS or swine flu or pick one. But this is still very much an unknown. And how much is this going to impact their GDP, and how much is this going to impact the rest of the globe's economic activity? Uh, look, I, I think you can look through. I think the markets have looked through the coronavirus. So what I like to say is, look, I wouldn't say we live in China's world, but we are in the same life raft together. Uh-huh. And to answer your question, if China's economy goes through a super hard landing, every aspect of our financial markets will get affected. I mean, obviously commodities, but commodities flies through, uh, affects high yield as well, because energy bonds have a lot of issuance. It'll affect U.S. equities as well. Right now, I'd say both Chinese equities and U.S. equities are saying this coronavirus will work itself out. Chinese equities are right where they were a month or two ago. So, so people don't, buying China stocks don't think that so this look is going to have lasting Again, I hate to oversimplify, what is the central bank in China doing? So two years ago, they were slamming on the brakes because they were worried about debt, but they have since taken their foot off the brake. You know, they're not gassing it, but they are giving enough oxygen to the economy that I don't think we really need to worry about global growth. And, and that does assume that the coronavirus doesn't go crazy, but that's what the markets are so, assuming. So let's move from China, but stay international. Uh, you guys have offices in, in Australia and in Frankfurt, Germany. Why expand internationally and why those countries? What we found with our ETFs is that buyers around the world were using it. I mean, it was amazing. Like GDX, like literally people from 100 different countries were buying and trading U.S. ETFs. It's a really great invention, and we were lucky to be part of it. And so when we saw that, 
of course, we wanted to chase our clients. Right. Uh, Expanding internationally is not as easy as I thought it might be, but uh, because we had clients in Europe and Australia, we thought, hey, let's provide local opportunities for them. And because our industry is regulated and taxes are different, we basically had to set up shop in those countries. We have been speaking to Jan Van Eck of Van Eck Associates. You and I know each other for a couple of years. We're not uh, complete and total strangers. And as I was researching you, uh, I found a couple of interesting things. Our backgrounds are shockingly similar in that we both came out of college. We both didn't know what the hell we wanted to do. We both sort of wandered the earth trying a bunch of things some startups, some this, some that. Uh, my joke has been, well, if you are a Jewish boy from Long Island and you don't know what to do with your life, you go to law school. It, you don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. It's the law. <laughs> and it sounds like you had a similarly non-Long Island experience. Uh, yeah, that took me a while to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, but law school was the backup, so did did eventually punch that ticket. And the other question, which I didn't get to ask during the broadcast portion, um, when I was doing my research into Jan Van Eck, how do you transition from being a 14th century Flemish painter into a career on Wall Street? <laughs> and that's about as esoteric a question as I've ever asked. That is that is really amazing. Well, uh, funny, my grandfather did the research, and we're not not related. No relation. Not, no I related. mean, that is not an unknown painter in the world. My wife taught design and illustration and fine arts, and so I've been to every museum in the world. Just about, it certainly feels like I've been dragged to every museum. But when when uh, I first started researching, and I'm like, why is that name so familiar? Oh, that's right. Well, you knew I knew in college when people were taking that class because they were like, Jan, did you know that there was an artist called Jan Van Eck? And I was like, I can't. Granddad, yes. of course. Great, great, great granddad. <laughs> that, that's pretty hilarious. And it's funny because when on a lot of Google searches, he's got much better SEO than you do. So that's kind of, uh, that's, that's kind of interesting. So there are a handful of questions I did not get to that I have to ask you about prior to getting to our favorite questions, of which I have a few bonus ones on that I didn't warn you about, I'm gonna surprise you with. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about the ETF world. And the question I really didn't get to during broadcast that I wanted to is, 2006 is pretty early days in the world of ETFs. What motivated the move into ETFs? It's obviously been wildly successful, but tell us uh, what that ramp up was like and, and how did you make the decision, hey, this ETF thing is going to be big one day? I think you know my, my background is more of a business person who works at an asset manager rather than a portfolio manager. And like a lot of car engineers run car companies or used to, mm -hmm. uh, that, that mindset really matters. So ETFs were clearly there and they were growing. And the question is, do you latch on as a person to those new and interesting and growing and maybe better things, or do you not? And so we latched on and then also saw, wow, if since we were the gold mining fund leaders, if someone does an ETF on gold mining, we're dead. Right. Um, so you have to get people that. love to trade gold, and this is a way better vehicle. And we were, thank God, we, we got there first. Why not put out GLD uh, yourself or when you were looking around the world, 
how long has GLD been around? It's 10 years, 12 years? Yeah. Or did they... So in 06, it wasn't around in 06? No, it was think. not. It came afterwards. So go, yeah, the gold bullion ETF... Very. We've made so many mistakes, but you know, one one is not being more aggressive and earlier in thinking that the SEC would approve a gold bullion ETF. Right. Um, and Hindsight bias is always twenty twenty. Well, I well, mean, you know, who who knew? Sometimes you gotta just roll the dice. Although one would imagine that's an expensive risk to take. Saying they'll never approve this, but let's spend two million dollars anyway on lawyers, right? right? And that was a we didn't have that money back then, right. <laughs> so that that's kind of <laughs> that, that helps too, I guess, in explaining the past. But by the way, if you there's a fantastic Wall Street Journal story about the history of GLD. It came out a couple of years ago, and the background was the World Gold Council created the ETF because they had too much gold built up in warehouses, it was just a way of, hey, what are we doing with all this yellow crap? We got to get some of it out. And it was not very prescient in philosophy. It just worked out fantastically. Right. And even worse, we knew those people, of course. Really? Because all the gold mining companies were members of the World Gold oh. Council. Yeah, I don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, let's talk a little bit about the operations of, of ETFs. How do the flows in and out of index funds affect the underlying securities? Is this something that you have to plan and manage, especially if some of the junior miners are a little less liquid than uh, the bigger gold uh, miners? How do you deal with that? Well, as, as a lot of your listeners probably know, the function of an ETF is usually that you can take in-kind delivery of the securities. So right. for the vast majority of U.S. equities and other securities, Actually, we don't have to worry about it. It's the trading community that has to worry, say, okay, I anticipate I'm going to get this price for the ETF. I'm going to deliver this bundle of stocks or bonds. And so we don't actually have to trust it. And that's, touch it, that's one of the geniuses. Where we get involved is index rebalances. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know that is something where our portfolio managers pay a lot of attention because especially if you have a larger ETF and the trading community knows, ah, Van Eck has got to buy buy 100 million or 200 million of a stock, it's very important that we game them. So we may buy it before the index adds it, we might buy it afterwards, and there's enough volatility in the market that, that hopefully the trading community is not taking advantage of shareholders because that's our number one job. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Uh, our mutual colleague, Dave Nottig, is a big advocate of direct indexing. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Is this a challenge to thematic investing or ETFs, or is this really just a niche product? Although there are some companies with, you know, Pinnacle has a couple of hundred billion dollars in uh, direct indexing. Right, which is another form of SMA, right? It's, it's an index right. form of SMA. And I think, uh, so there are slight advantages to that. But one of the, uh, you know, I think one of the limitations is you can't really do that for fixed income. Mm -hmm. Everyone says, oh, the spider, you know, SPY, everything's transparent. It's not true. You know, 90% of bonds do not trade on a given day. Right. That's and right. so that's the, I think that's one of the beauties of fixed income ETFs. They have disadvantages, but one of the advantages is you're getting way better liquidity. Like we have an emerging market local currency bond ETF. You way rather trade that ETF at a penny wide than you would the underlying bonds. There's right? so it's many insane. more bonds than stocks. People don't realize the vast number of bonds. The joke is the Wilshire 5000 is what, 3,700 stocks, <laughs> something like that? <laughs> I think the last time I looked at it is something like 40 or 60,000 
bonds that trade at least once a year, some crazy number like that. There are tons and tons of bonds out there. Every local municipality, every corporate, in all sorts of different years and all sorts of different tranches. Right. You would much rather trade the funds than the specific bonds. Absolutely. And that's why that's, that's one of the you know, limitations of direct indexing. The thing I'd like to point out as well, what's happened over our careers, right, is fixed income is the last holdout for voice broking. So all equity Vo- trading- say that, say that again for voice. Vo- I'll being able that. to pick up the phone and say, buy me 10,000 No, X. the only way to trade it is, is by picking way. up the phone. You can't, there's no right? electronic version. Well, there's text messaging, the same thing, right? <laughs> so all equity trading has gone electronic. Right. Not true when we came out. All options trading is electronic, right. basically. All commodity futures trading is electronic. Fixed income, it's still a minority of trades. You know, even- most generous calculation is 33% of investment grade trades last year were electronic. Wow. So that just shows you that they're the fixed income, you can't just do things. And I think people look at direct indexing and other things say, oh, yeah, the whole world is electronic. Everything is simple because I can see them on Yahoo Finance. Not true. Isn't the U.S. Treasury bonds, tra- aren't they trading electro- uh, electric? Yeah, they're electronic. I mean, sure. they're, they're the deepest, most liquid markets, and you have a very, very specific... Um, run of dates. Everybody knows what what each uh, vintage is, but beyond treasuries, things really start to get a little squirrely, don't they? Absolutely. So one of the other questions I I had to ask you that um, is kind of intriguing, tell us about, by the way, this is the worst segue from electronic, (laughs) non-electronic trading of bonds to this. What is the Van Eck Forest? Ah, so, uh, not really related to me. Um, it was my uncle, or our firm, I should say, so I don't want to take any credit. But my uncle, Fred, uh, who, who never married, gave all his money to charity when he passed away. And mm-hmm. he did something super creative. So, he, he loved trees. And what he did is bought Redwood Forest in Northern California after it had been clear cut. So, there was no commercial value. Wait, back up a sec. So, you take a Redwood Forest... Are are we using redwood for commercial uses? I didn't oh yeah, know we were doing that. Oh my God! So redwoods are beautiful trees. Spectacular. Ninety-five plus percent of all old growth redwoods. I mean, these things are beautiful. They, thousand year old you know, trees. Thousand yeah. year old trees were cut down. Ninety. I think it's ninety-eight percent. Really? Were cut down to build San Francisco and other things. Right. And, and they just it's left amazing. in Amazing, no one said stop. I mean, uh-huh. John Muir said stop, right. but you know, it took a while, but all the damage was done. We were like, why don't you stop at 50% or 60 right. or 70? Like, it, it's just a complete disaster. So anyway, the, the, the but trees grow back. So he um, he was a great value investor and he just bought all this uh, redwood forest for almost nothing. And mm-hmm. guess what, 20 years later, you know, the redwoods are growing. So what he did is basically create a sustainable redwood forest. This is Fred. Fred Van Eck. Uh, uh-huh. he, was a, he was a director of our company, but otherwise not involved. And he created a sustainable forest. So what he said is, I'm not going to, I'm going to give the income to charity. So it was the largest gift to Purdue University ever. Mm-hmm. But I'm not, I'm not going to allow people just to cut the trees down. I'm going to do something called selective harvesting, right. which is basically like weeding a forest. And what happens if you weed a forest, it actually grows, grows faster. Better, sure. so, so that's managed by the uh, Pacific Forest Trust. 
And then what they did as well is because California has carbon credits, uh-huh. they qualified the, the forest, the Vedic forest, for carbon credits. So it was the first property in the U.S. to qualify to get carbon credits, which they sold to Arnold Schwarzenegger and Nancy Pelosi. No kidding. It's such an interesting story. Wow, but I take crazy. absolutely no credit for it. I mean, we, we help it a little bit when, now. When but. I told you I, we do a deep dive, <laughs> if I'm finding out about the uh, – but actually it was mentioned somewhere on your uh, corporate website, if I remember, unless it was just my uh, shocking yeah, we mentioned Google it, skills. But, you know. Yeah. So, so that's, pretty, that's pretty intriguing. Um, and final question before we get to our standard questions is – what did you learn from your dad about leadership and running an investment business? You, you worked with him for how long? How long was the overlap? Well, I mean, you know, we talked. He talked about work at home, right? <laughs> so almost. So most of your. So uh, yeah, most of my life. Right. Um, so and then you know into my thirties, he he luckily had a long life. He passed away at ninety eight. Uh, That's some my, good genes. My man. dad was an economist. Yeah. Okay. He was not a businessman, and he was not really a portfolio manager. So his he he had this view of the world, like look at what's going on, and then take advantage, and then implement. Right. Right. So just that perspective. And that risk taking is really what I learned from him, is is question the structure. The world is changing. What's changing, and do you, does that give you opportunity or risk in your portfolio? Hmm. So that's really what I what I learned from him. He was very uh, he was very much a gentleman. He was very collaborative uh, within the firm, and uh, you know he knew what he didn't know. So the first thing the first person he hired to run the gold fund was a geologist. So that's one of our histories is having real people from industry as part of our portfolio management team. Huh. Quite quite fascinating. Uh, any major topics I didn't get to before we get to my favorite questions? Well, we'll get this to some other time, but the fact that the explosion of passive means that ownership of corporate America is in, you know, concentrated at some very big firms. Let, let's talk about that because I'm astonished at some of the uh, myths and discussions that have arisen around this. Do you look at passive as um, a challenge to your core business model, or do you look at passive as a, a lazy person's approach to investing? How, how do you think of passive? Well, I think and you know my bias. So. Yeah, cheap, cheap market exposure passive has been fantastic for investors, right? It's lowered costs. Uh, they, dramatically. Dr- dramatically. And um, you know, it's in a way not our business. We try to do value added or different exposures. What I would say is it's also been a perfect environment for that. You know, uh, you know, one of your questions is, "What do you wish you had known 30 years ago?" Well, I wish I, I don't was, tell everybody. So I, I wish I had known that interest rates were going to fall my entire career because financial assets have had this huge tailwind, really, for for you know since 1980. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop you right there, and I have to stop you because the person responsible for that. Is it 40 years, 82 to 2020? Almost 40-year bond bull market and falling interest rates. And to this day, they're still falling. Where was the 30-year last week? (laughs) Oh, my God. One, five, five, something crazy. Yeah. um, Was Paul Volcker. Right. Who, on occasion, am I remembering this correctly, 
Did your dad have lunch with Paul Volcker on a regular basis? No, not regular basis once. Oh, once. Once. And and, and I was, was luckily to be invited. So someone thought it was funny, probably someone with your type of personality say, "Hey, this guy got, you know, solved the inflation problem in the US and, you know, gold got killed for 20 years afterwards." They should meet each other. <laughs> and because is know, that my, my dad made humor? money. I don't, I don't know if that's my sense of humor. <laughs> to me, any opportunity I get to meet a Fed chair, I'm going to take that. Well, you lunch like to put interesting stick people together. With the, yes, you exactly. like to put interesting people 100%. together. And there was probably a little humor associated with this particular combination. Okay. In any case, so uh, who arranged that lunch? Uh, I don't. I don't remember. It was sort of a vague associate of my dad's. I think it was someone who ran a fixed income shop. Like we didn't know. We didn't know that person well. Right. Anyway, so I tagged along, and it was- How old were you at the time? Wow. Uh, I- uh, probably in my 30s. Okay. Did you did you appreciate the gravity oh, of yeah. meeting oh, Tall Paul? By the way, I mean, I he's a rock star. Superstar. Right? Absolute superstar. I think he deserves much more of the credit for the so-called Reagan revolution than he's gotten. Because Reagan did a bunch of things that I think were very helpful, but none of which would have happened and he didn't appo- him. And he didn't appoint Volcker, I don't think, either. No. Right? In fact, he- Reminder, when Volcker's t- term was up- Reagan replaced him with some guy named Alan Greenspan. Right. So that's another reason to be a little miffed at Ronald Reagan. He fobbed <laughs> that, uh, I, I won't use any curse words on the air, but I, I blame the crisis, the great financial crisis had a lot of inputs and a lot of factors that caused it. But towards the top of that list is Alan Greenspan, both as a monetist and a regulator. He He messed up. I'm trying to keep it G-rated. He messed up in two different ways, but avo- let's avoid that digression. I got to meet Tall Paul at, I think it was in 08, at Chris Whalen's election party, and I found him to be absolutely charming. Um, he just passed away right. uh, last year. What was your lunch with him like? What was your experience like? And were you aware that you know, you were having a brush with greatness. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, he, this, this is sort of like, like you said, he had a major effect on everything, on everything, right? Uh, the structure of financials and, and, and everything. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was great meeting him. You know, he was more disengaged from the financial markets at the time than, than my dad was, which I thought was just odd. Uh, Disengaged. Uh, with the day-to-day. Was... Okay, so my again, my dad was a, like a pencil-sharp economist, and right. he was obsessed with money supply growth. And I think they were talking about Japan at the time. That was a hot topic. Right. And, you know, this was bef- the beginnings of Japan. So is this you know, in the, 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 the end 90s? of the bubble? Yeah, yeah, the end of the bubble. How to deal with the bubble. And, you know, before this long period of disinflation or whatever you want to call it. Right. In, deflation. In, in, deflation yeah. in, in Japan. And you know, my dad knew this, this I didn't know the statistics of last month's, you know, money supply growth in Japan. And Volcker was like, I have no interest in this topic whatsoever. So, so money supply <laughs> is part of this huge list of economic and market indicators that people used to track obsessively because they thought it would help them figure out what's going on with the market. Yeah. And one by one, because if you think about it, hey, the money supply is expanding – all that will eventually work its way into the stock market, and stocks will go higher until that just completely stopped working. It was a coincidental correlation for a long time. 
or maybe it was an input factor. I don't know. We look at so much. We used to look at some of the odd lot data point. And I know guys who used to, and was all guys, who used to track that stuff obsessively in the 90s. Yeah. And it just stopped working. Uh, Charles Bitterman ran trim tabs that used to check money flow in and out of mutual funds. This market has done more or less nothing but go up for over a decade. And at the same time, money flows out of funds, something like a half a trillion dollars, have left mutual funds, not left mutual funds to go into ETFs. They've left the, the building and the market continues to go well, on. Well, that's a separate that's a separate podcast on I don't believe flows affect prices. For, uh, but for a long time, people it was did. it was gospel. Here's my point. It used to be that all money would go through, you know, the central bank into commercial banks. Now there's so much money, so much lending happening outside the banking system, right? Only half of the lending is happening inside our banking system. They've got hedge funds lending private to companies, equity. private, but but credit. I'm just talking about credit. Uh-huh. So you've got a totally different world. That's why we don't care about that stuff is because the transmission mechanism right. is totally different. That's why the central bank has to go and buy bonds and, st- you know, even stocks and ETFs in different countries to affect the markets because they're not be able to transmit through reserve ratio requirements. Right. Remember all that kind right. of stuff? Right. So uh, it, we're all in a these different indicators world. are gone. And um, we used to call that the shadow banking sector. And it's not in the shadows anymore. No, it's, it's huge. It's, it's now the banking sector. They're just non-bank lenders. Right. Which is very different than when it seemed a little subversive and... Uh, you know, a, a little illicit. It's not. It's just a different form of credit. Right. Quite fascinating. All right. So let's get to our favorite questions. Um, I, I, I'm interested to hear about some of your uh, answers. And I have to start out with um, what was the first car you ever had? First car. Oh, my God. My brother and I in college shared the cheap. I don't know. And I know you're a car guy, but it was like an Oldsmobile that had 500,000 miles on it. And 500, was ha- that's was a lot ha- Well, it didn't, but I mean, so we were happy, it, happy to, hit, you know, to reach let our destination. Let me switch it up on you. What are you, what are you streaming in terms of video on Netflix or Amazon Prime? What are you downloading in terms of podcasts and listening to? Tell us what you're... Uh, entertaining yourself with well I, i'm a little bit of a junkie in podcasts so mm-hmm. i don't really uh, watch a lot of uh, video uh so i listen to about seven hours of podcasts i love a day a week okay sorry <laughs> a, a, day, a day would be hard to get like, anything wow. done um i've learned a lot from i'll call it the stars in our industry right? give us some names well yours truly uh patrick well, o'shaughnessy uh ted sides you know capital allocators mm-hmm. um and uh, a little bit off stream, I love Kara Swisher. Uh, She's so much fun. I had her at, not only did I have her as a guest where she chewed the scenery, but if you listen to Pivot with her and Scott Galloway, yeah, so much fun. Yeah. The, uh, so I learned a lot. I did my Bitcoin learning in 2017. So I learned a lot from Patrick O'Shaughnessy. A mm-hmm. lot, I learned a lot from Pomp and this Australian guy, Stefan Levera. But I would say the podcast episode, you know, of the my Bar career, podcasting career was when Scott Galloway predicted the takeover of Whole Foods by Amazon on Kara Swisher's podcast. Mm-hmm. I remember I was just coming, finishing a run, and I was like, wow. 
Because everyone in call. business is always looking at the fangs going, how is this going to impact my business? Right. Right. Is Amazon going to come into finance, all this kind of stuff? And he just he just nailed it. And then literally it happened. And I'm like, wow, there are a lot of smart people out there. I think I think he's been a guest four times on the show. She, he's just been a, a ton of fun to interview. And um, man, you got to give him credit for being way out there. Now, his background in branding and marketing yeah. really helps him. Um, but that was just such a prescient call. So, yeah. so sharp. Uh, what's the most important thing people don't know about Jan Van Eck? Um, it's important, but uh, my first language wasn't English. What was it? It was German. Uh, really? My mom was German, and uh, she just came over to the U.S. shortly before they got married. They met in Germany. Mm-hmm. And so she spoke German at home, and that's what I learned. And uh, what was funny about it is that the elementary school thought I was not fast because I was learning English, English at the same time, language. so right. they wanted me to repeat a grade. Did you? So my parents said, you know, we're out of here. We're going to the suburbs. <laughs> New York and, City is too is too ridiculous. And you were gone. Was gone. Isn't Van Eck uh, a Dutch name? Or yeah, my uh, dad's side was Dutch. Okay, but my mom's side was German. Huh. Quite interesting. And speaking of your dad, who are who were some of your early mentors? And I assume your dad looms large in that. Yeah, you know, I've talked about my dad. I would say, uh, you know, the one person I would mention is a Stanford Law School professor, Joe Grundfest. So mm-hmm. I don't know that if name you sounds familiar. know him. He was an SEC commissioner. Ah, okay. And he does, uh, he's, he's involved in a lot of stuff. He comments uh, in, in government, governance uh, work at Stanford as well. Uh, but, you know, in a class I was taking with him, and I was his research assistant as well, he basically made fun of active managers. He's like, that, that is like a dinosaur. And I was, he was probably the first person who said that to me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's also when I saw the ETF trend, it triggered that, wow, this actually might be the future. Uh, so he, uh, he would, I would put him in that category. Hmm. Quite interesting. Um, what investors influence the way you approach investing? There I go back to my, my father. I think, you know, Barry, I've learned so much from so many different people. So there, I just can't really do a shout out. But, um, you know, I love the people that are talking about how the world is changing today, who are forward looking, um, because I think the market structure is changing. And so, uh, um, you know, that's, that's, there's so many people that are good at that. I think it'd be unfair to pull one person out. Fair enough. Um, let's talk a little bit about books. What do you read? What sort of books? What What are some of the most recent books you've enjoyed? So uh, I'm I don't have a lot of time. You know, in our industry, we consume so much content, and it's it's hard to get through books. But uh, I'll mention two. Um, one is uh, the Overstory. I don't know if you've heard about this. Overstory uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, it was written by Richard Powers, and it's basically about trees, uh, where it's it's a fiction book where trees play a major part in it, and um, it's a, it's a long book. Uh, but I would, I really, I really enjoyed it, and um, it really made me appreciate forests. If I had to give you one takeaway from a fiction book, which mm-hmm. is weird, that that forests are wow. are really environments that you know they go beneath the ground the trees interact with each other and it's it's so much more complex than the way i look at a single tree sitting in my front yard all alone that's not the way to look at trees um, so if you're interested in that fascinating 
Can I give you my second one? Sure. Out of, out of the blue. So um, I have these enthusiasms, and I tried to reach a, read a biography on every American president, and then I ran out of, <laughs> I ran ran out out of energy. Oh, okay. uh, I ran out of energy. Didn't run out of presidents. But, uh, but one of my favorites is uh, Gene Smith's Grant biography. Uh-huh. So I got to believe no one's talked to you about uh, Ulysses S. Grant uh, on your podcast. And I wouldn't make that bet so quickly. All right. Well, the two the, here what, are my, here are my two takeaways. It's just Grant. Just I don't Grant. Know. Um, there it but, is. But uh, I'll tell you why. Number one, you know, Grant helped win the war. I mean, we focus on Lincoln, but if Lincoln, if we had lost the civil, if the North had lost the Civil War. The, the United States is a completely different country. Sure. And he was so celebrated. He gets such a bad rap when it comes to history that he was, you know, an alcoholic and this and that. He was very magnanimous as, as he could be when he was president towards the South and towards, um, you know, towards the blacks that, you know, he really, I think, deserves a lot more credit for those two reasons. The second element of the reason I love this book is, you know, when you go to college and you read about these historians, you get kind of a view of history. And what you don't realize is that there's schools of thought, right? And, and, that, and, and this book was a, a revisionist school of thought. Like, you know, people get trashed by historians and then their reputations come back. And I didn't realize that dynamic went on so much in academia. You know, every natural, uh, you know, natural you know, biology, and we know that's changing all the time and it's not the same as it was 30 years ago, but that's true for history too. Hmm, quite interesting. Um, when I said don't, uh, don't assume so quickly, I was mostly wrong. Someone recommended a Grant book, but it was the Chernow no. Grant book, not the Smith Grant book. Yeah, his books are so long. I mean, can you really read that? I don't know. I, I, I everything I've read of his has just been spectacular. No, it's good. I know. He's I a know. fantastic. I have, I've been writer. given that book five times. You know. <laughs> oh, really? Well, because I talk about Grant, so I, I should read it. So, but. so if you read presidential biographies, uh, did you read any of the Chernow Washington or Jefferson or any? Uh, of the other Chernow presidential things, or are they just too I, long for I you? I own them. <laughs> yeah, right. Hey, listen, I don't want to talk about how many books I have at home. My I'm, a, dirty... I'm, a, I'm a Hamilton fan. I'll just put it. I'll put uh-huh. it out there. So you know, I don't know if you know that we design our own ties. That I know. Uh, I so I'm wearing a Hamilton, a Hamilton tie. tie. So uh, that's uh, my. Uh, I'll, I'll defend Hamilton. Um, before I saw the show. Again, not a recommended. I get the annotated Hamilton lyrics. Yep. Um, Hamilton, the Revolution is his annotated version of the the lyrics to the show, uh, Lin Manuel Miranda's lyrics, and it's really quite fascinating how he explains everything. Yeah, um, and annotates how there's so many different interesting references. But given your predilection for biographies. Do you um, read anything like uh, McCullough's book on the Wright brothers or anything along those lines? I haven't gotten to that. It's so just, good. There's so much stuff, yeah. yeah. I've it's, heard. It's, he, he's, a, he's a great popularizer of American history. Right. Okay, Lehman, uh, yes, Lehman Trilogy. It's Someone coming, else recommended it's, it's Lehman It's coming Trilogy. back to Broadway. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, if you like history mm-hmm. and you uh, know finance, you have to see that play. Okay. I'm um, in. That's a that's a must. The Lehman trilogy. Yeah.
It was, um, it was here briefly, started in London. You know, it's just theater, so uh, maybe they make a movie. I guess I don't know, but I really recommend that. If you all right, I'll put I'll put that on on our list. Um, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. So uh, lots of failures. I think uh, what the one that resonates the most with me is when we were launching different mutual funds before ETFs, mm-hmm. uh, we launched some international fixed income funds that invested in high-yielding European debt. Right. Um, well, it's not like it was Russian debt. No, but... Uh, it turned out to be like it. So <laughs> basically, you know, as a money manager, whenever you can sell a yield, you can get flows. And we were getting a ton of money into this fund. And this was the time where European uh, exchange rates, it's, it's sort of the pre-euro environment uh-huh. where exchange rates were linked. And as George Soros uh, famously predicted and made a lot of money on, that link was going to break. And that link broke. And so our funds... Uh, as did a lot of others, but our funds lost a lot of NAV value. And one of the principles I take away from that learning experience is it's so important to try to identify the risks of an investment mm-hmm. along with the potential return. And, you know, in a prospectus, you can put down 20 risks. You don't get any points for, you know, identifying right. a risk in a prospectus. You've got to pull it up and center and say, hey, listen, this is a major risk to this fund. And we've really try to get better at that. And whenever there's been funds um, that we could have launched, um, that's been in my mind. And and there are a lot of funds we haven't launched because of that experience. What do you do for fun? What do you do when you're not in the office? Uh, Love to travel. Mm -hmm. I learn so much from traveling. Um, And and thanks to my wife who likes to travel as well. It was on our honeymoon that we went to Hong Kong and I saw what was going on in China. It was never in the paper then. Mm -hmm. You can learn so much from contextualizing through travel. Um, so there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, the Van Eck forest, frankly, my wife dragged me out there. Wasn't, I was dying to go look at a bunch of trees, but, you know, learned so much from that experience and, and got more involved, uh, tennis. And then the last thing, how long have you been playing tennis for? So, uh, one of my sons plays tennis for Brown. He starts on the varsity team. Mm-hmm. And, oh, so uh, he's got to be You good. know, you're sitting in these cold tennis courts in Long Island you know, in the middle of February, and I'm standing talking to the dads, and all of them had played college tennis. Right. And I was like, you know, whatever. I was such a hack athlete at everything. And I was like, okay, but I know he's genetically related to me. I can't be that bad. So I picked up tennis about 10 years ago, and huh. I've enjoyed playing that. And then I like to host dinners. I mean, I, I know you do that too. Yeah, it's so I much fun. I love to brainstorm with, you know, bring people together when I can. So I try to do that, you know, f- three or four times a Th- year. There's so much intellectual capital here in New York. In New York. How do you not take advantage of, you, you can't swing a dead cat without hitting a Nobel laureate, a billionaire, someone who's really insightful, and they got to eat also. And the world is changing. That's what's cool, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that's what, you just can't go out and read a book because some of these changes haven't been you know, documented. I found that a lot with China. That's why I traveled there 50 times. It's like, you couldn't read about what was going on in China. You had to see it. And, And I know other people do these idea dinners where it's an attempt to sell something. We set ours up, and I know you do the same, where there's no agenda. It's just, let's get eight really interesting people in a room and have a conversation and see where it goes. There's no sales pitches. Nobody asks anybody to do anything. It's just... Hey, let's talk about what's going on in the world. Absolutely. It, it, it's quite quite fascinating. So within our industry, what are you most optimistic about and what are you most pessimistic about? 
uh, optimistic. I have to be optimistic, as I said before. There's so many unsolved problems, I think, in understanding how financial markets work. And I know you're, you're doing research in, in that area. So I'm optimistic about all the innovations that are to come. I think the pessimistic thing about our industry, we, what do you and I do? We manage money for people who have money. Why do they have money? Because they've saved or someone gave them money, right? Or half, they started a business that ended up being very successful but or half, even moderately Half of successful. Americans, and we talk about this in our industry, but half of Americans don't save. They don't, don't have stocks, don't save. They don't save. know how to save. They don't right. know how to open a brokerage account. Uh, we just led an investment in a company called Financial Gym, which is just oriented around that, like getting physically fit. And it's just like the gym. Like, you don't want to go. You think you want to go in your New Year's resolution, then you don't go. And they are just real-life people who have found ways of engaging, and they've got unlimited demand because a lot of people need financial I'm, advice. I'm intrigued by the Robin Hood concept of rounding up whatever you spend on a credit card and sending it to a, a, a savings or brokerage account. Yeah. And you wouldn't think that rounding up is a lot of money, but it can be. I, I have a jar of loose change. It's probably $900. It weighs 100 pounds that I just come home and throw the change out of my- There are a lot of apps out there. There's a lot of tools, but a lot of people don't even, they don't think about that need. And and the consequence is stress. Mm -hmm. If you don't have money, you have stress in your life. And that's- like we've all lived through periods of stress, and right. uh, and that and that. So when I think about our our industry collectively, I hope that business people can help solve uh, you know solve that problem a little bit. Huh. Qu- quite intriguing. And our final two questions: What advice would you give to a recent college graduate who is just beginning their career and interested in either finance or asset management? It's it's. It's what we talked about before. Try a lot of different things. You know, David Rubenstein said, <laughs> I saw him last week, said, what you do before you're 30 doesn't matter. Um, and, you know, so many um, people I know who are younger in college are so concerned about their career track. And I, I get that. But you really have to know what you like to do uh, and, and can succeed in. So that is, that is the that's the big thing is try and try different things because I, I don't know how you can figure out whether you like something if you haven't tried it. You're, you're from the same camp as I, which is, I don't know what the hell I wanted to do when I was 19 or 25 or by 30, I started to having an inkling. I get the sense you traveled a similar path. And I'm worried the kids don't do that enough these days. Huh. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew? 30 years ago. 30 years ago, let's call it, uh, yeah, 92, 30 years ago. Wow. Uh, don't have a great answer to that. I guess I wish I knew interest rates were going to come down the whole time. Uh, I think there is... right. Was there, was there any sign in 92 that this was a sea change in the world of inflation and uh, yield, or... Did it? Was it just? Remember the? I don't think so. It's like right? eighty nine. When, when did when did Volcker? Oh, I'm sorry. Seventy nine, eighty was when he caused yeah. the double dip. Eighty and eighty two, the double dip recession. He broke the back of inflation. So you were barely a dozen years into that. Right. Um, yeah. So th- I wish I'd known that. You know, I really uh, that that when you have lower interest rates, that helps stock market valuations and obviously helps fixed income. And I think we're now in a spot where what is the next 20 years going to bring us? 
That, I want to know what's happening in the next 10 years, Barry. That is <laughs> the, the trillion-dollar question, and I'll tell you afterwards. Okay. We have been speaking with Jan Van Eck, CEO of Van Eck Associates. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you could see any of our prior 300-plus conversations. You'll find that on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Overcast, Stitcher, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Be sure and go to Apple iTunes and give us a review. Send us an email at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on bloomberg.com. Sign up for my daily reads at ritholtz.com. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff who helps put these conversations together each week. Sam Shivrov is our producer slash booker. Mark Siniscalgi is our audio engineer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.